Hi, I'm Jade Siri Ramos. I am the producer of A Public Affair. Did you know you can find our show anywhere you get podcasts? Just search A Public Affair wherever you like to listen, and you can find us, and you'll never miss an episode. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal. Good world. afternoon and welcome to a public affair. Uh, today you get to be joined with me, Jade Siri Ramos, your producer for a public affair. Unfortunately, Ali Muldrow is out. Um, today, I'm sending you well wishes, Ali. I hope you feel better soon. In a post-war, sorry, post-Roe era, um, and, and before before Roe was overturned and gutted by um, by the Supreme Court, about fifty percent, um, maybe even a little bit more than fifty percent, of all abortions were. Per- performed via um, a a pill, an abortion pill. Um, But I think a lot of us don't think about what goes on behind that pill, right? It's a a thing that's prescribed by your doctor, um, you know, previously before um, the FDA said that that, uh, a... um, (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, that a pharmacy can just pre- prescribe it or, or give it to you there. You know, you get it at your doctor's office. Um, we don't really think about what is going on behind the people who maybe created that pill and the people who put money behind that pill. But my guest today, um, Hannah Levitova, has been thinking about that in her new piece um, from the from Mother Jones. The t- piece is titled The Abortion Pill Secret Money Men, the untold story of the private equity investors behind Mifeprex and their escalating battle to cash in post jobs. Hannah, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Um, all right, Hannah, how did you decide that this is something that you needed to dig into? What what sparked the the spark in you to decide that um, you want to know who was putting their money behind the abortion pills? So um, in, in another life earlier in my reporting career, I actually covered reproductive health care. And um, in the years since, I've transitioned to doing business reporting. And now I do a lot of business investigations. That's kind of my jam at Mother Jones. Um, and so when the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in June, my initial thought was, OK, what's the business angle on this? You know, follow the money. Mm-hmm. This is a sea change for American women for abortion access. And what financial opportunities is that going to present? Um, And so I just started digging into that and um, discovered I had no idea before I kind of started digging that um, Mifeprex or Mifepristone, which is one of the two drugs that make up a medication abortion or what is commonly known as the abortion pill, Um, was funded by private equity investors Mm -hmm. Um, and a very kind of secretive group of private equity investors um, whose story was totally secret and hidden from public view for many years until a few of them took each other to court and by doing that kind of unmasked their own identities Um, so there are still you know investors in this venture that I don't know we may never know Um, but that's kind of how I got into it was that that was just my first question when Roe was overturned. Um, and in the course of some digging, I discovered all of these court records that had just never really been brought to light. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think let's go back to the, the very beginning. These, there's two pills that were taught or that, um, that are part of the abortion pill, right? There's, um, Mifepristone and Misopristone. Prostol, right? And we're talking mm-hmm. about mifepristone. Um, yep. Okay, so um, you start start in your in your piece talking about um, bringing mifepristone to the United States. Um, where where were we at in you know 1993 before there was access to this in the U.S.? Yeah, that's kind of where the story starts. So um, in the 80s in France, um, a pharmaceutical company there developed what was then called RU486, which was mifepristone, the abortion pill. Um, And American women were clamoring for access to it. 
Um, but the the Reagan and Bush administrations essentially banned the drug. But mm-hmm. when Bill Clinton was elected, he lifted that ban, which then just escalated the demand for it in the U.S. because now it was actually possible. Um, but the French company that made it had absolutely no desire to wade into abortion politics in the early 90s in the United States. Um, that was really the apex of anti-abortion violence in this country. Um, doctors had been killed. Mm-hmm. Clinics had been bombed. Um, it was just they didn't want to wade into it. They were worried that it would affect their business for other products in the U.S., that they'd get picketed, all these. So they were like, no way. We're not we're not touching this. And similarly, U.S. pharmaceutical companies, mainstream pharmaceutical companies were like, we don't want to touch this. It's going to kill, hurt our business, too. So despite all of this demand, not it just wasn't happening. Um, and so what happened was in the early 90s, two separate efforts mm-hmm. to try to bring the pill here to the U.S. kind of started around the same time. One was a very underground operation where, and I just think this story is so, it really speaks to how much American women were clamoring for this. Like they, you know, abortion rights activists were sending lobbyists to Europe to try to convince the French company to change their mind. Like there was so much effort. The demand was so high. So anyway, so one of these operations was um, a small group of um, pro-choice activists rented a warehouse in Westchester County in New York and created a full-on underground drug lab to try to recreate the pill themselves. They had essentially smuggled a few pieces or a few, I don't know what to call pills Mm -hmm. um, into the country. And they were like, we're just going to try We're going to get it. They had a chemist. Um, They had a secret doctor who went by Dr. X. So his, his or her identity would not be revealed. Um, And they, you know, they had a cover for their landlord, for their garbage collector, the whole thing. Um, And they set out to recreate the drug themselves. Which really, they did in, successfully. In, in this piece, you set it up, and it really, um, it feels like they're like teenage mi- mutant ninja turtles. You know, they're like <laughs> in an underground bunker trying to develop this thing. It's uh, the visual that that I'm getting is is um, very secretive. I know. I wish that that was a time where like cell phone video existed so that we could see it. But all I have is descriptions. You mm-hmm. know, print documents, descriptions, but. Even those, they really paint a picture. Um, So, but while this kind of underground operation was going on, at the same time, the Population Council, which is a reproductive rights nonprofit, um, was trying to work with the French company to get the official patent for the drug so that they could, if they had it, then they can find a manufacturer, they can find a retailer in the U.S. So that was the kind of official effort that was ongoing at the same time. Um, And they did. They did eventually get the patent, which is then sort of where the private equity story begins, because then they have the patent, but they need someone to make the drug and they need a company in the U.S. to retail it, to distribute it, you know, to kind of be the face of of getting it from point A to point B Mm -hmm. to the patients who need it. Um, So, yeah, that I'll stop. Well, I'll stop there. So Um, (laughs) (laughs) well, no. Yeah. So we're now getting to this this place um, where we we, in theory, it can be made in the U.S. Um, And you have the patent. We have the patent. Um, You brought this point earlier, but like people are desperate for this. Right. Like the other the other options for an abortion are like really uncomfortable and they're um i mean you mentioned previously doctors are being killed you know the 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 all all about getting an abortion at this time um you know i think people wanted an easier um way to do it yeah yeah i mean looking back at old kind of news stories from this time when the campaign to get it to the u.s was so was at its peak um you know the discreetness of it is the main appeal. The fact that maybe you don't actually have to walk to a clinic and go through a bunch of protesters. Or, you know, there was an idea at the time where, well, if if all you need is a doctor to prescribe it, then maybe we can get to a point where you're just walking into 
a hospital or a medical office and you're indistinguishable as both a patient and a medical professional from people going in there to like do colonoscopies or whatever, right. you know? Um, so the discreetness was the, the discreetness and obviously the, the comfort, um, relative comfort was, um, definitely the appeal. Um, so while we're here, I want to, I, I kind of want to, I, I, the way that I, I see the story playing out, we are sort of losing the Westchester County people, right? They, they did their teenage mutant, mutant ninja turtle stuff, but then we lose them in the story. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's always the battle in a story of what you can put in and why you have to cut for readability. Mm-hmm. So they were very much in contact with the population council and their efforts, I think really sped up and fueled the official effort mm-hmm. because they, they knew of each other. There were some efforts and discussion of collaboration. Um, it, I would I I would argue helped the FDA approval process as well because the the underground operation people got like a limited FDA approval to sort of test the drug in a few clinics, which was then helpful for the broader FDA authorization. So they are very much a part of the story in kind of escalating the issue and making this move more quickly. It still took almost a decade to get the approval and really get started, but um, but yes, I mean, the one of the activists wrote a whole book about the um, the underground operation. Yeah. So I read the book. There's so much more. It just didn't fit. This right. story is already so long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we you got to read that book. Do you remember what the name of the book is? Oh, it's called. It's by Lawrence Later. It's called A Private Matter. Um, and then the subhead is something about the battle to bring RU486 to the U.S., something, something like that. Awesome. I'm butchering it, but All right, so that, later, yeah, yeah, so that's where very, you go to learn more well. about the, the stuff that we're not going to get into because we're going to get into the money, the dirty, <laughs> maybe not dirty. I shouldn't say dirty money, but the money behind the, behind the pill. Um, so it takes it takes a while, right? They get the patent. The FDA comes several years later with approval. Um, and the council is now able to uh, start distrib- distribution uh, or start making it. Where are so we at there? Actually, a lot of the investment starts before FDA approval. Mm, okay. Um, way before in the early 90s. So um, the council, once they have the patent, they reach out to an investor whose name is Joseph Pike, who had previously worked with the council to help um, bring the Paragard, the IUD, to American women. And so he was sort of like a proven entity to them. And so they reach out to him and they say, hey, we have a patent for this new pill that there's so much demand for in the U.S. We need you to essentially build a financial structure for it. We need you to find investors. You know, can you do that? Um, And that is what kicks off... The, the private equity piece. Um, I, before I get into that, I should say that like that in itself is a pretty non-traditional yeah. way to bring a main, a pharmaceutical, a, a drug that a lot of people are going to potentially use to the U.S. So typically, you know, maybe the U.S. government will provide some funds for initial research on a drug and then a pharmaceutical company will take over and take it to the finish line. And private investors really typically only get involved with drugs that are for, quote, a rare disease, Mm -hmm. which is defined as um, a disease with 200,000 cases a year or less. Um, Obviously, abortion is not something that it's not a rare disease drug, right? Back then, Back in the 90s, in the early 90s, when this was all starting, about one and a half million women per year were having abortions. That number has gone down since then because of access to better access to contraception. Um, but it's still in like eight or nine hundred thousand. It's still, mm-hmm. you know, not a rare disease drug at all. So it was quite unique um, and spoke to how this was really seen as quite controversial that like the government, mainstream pharma, wasn't going to touch it. And so the population council says, hey, 
we need you to breathe some money into this with private investment. Right, right. I think, um, yeah, what you're you're talking about is where those overlap, the like, it's so rare that the FDA doesn't want to invest in it, or it doesn't make sense for them to invest in it. So that the um, private investors have to come in. And, or the FDA doesn't want to touch it, because it's so controversial that like, it's just not, it's, you know, it's a, it's too hard to move forward on. Um, So the private investors come in. If you are just tuning in, I'm talking with Hannah Levitova, an award-winning investigative journalist with Mother Jones. She writes stories about money and influence and income inequality and politics. And her newest piece is titled The Abortion Pill Secret Money Men, um, the untold story of the private equity investors behind Mifeprex and their escalating legal battle to cash in post-Dobbs. Um, if you would like to join the conversation, uh, you can feel free to do that. We're at 608-256-2001, extension 9. We are running a tight ship today, um, so please uh, keep your comments, uh, you know, get them real, really uh, thought out before you call in. Um, but we would love to hear from you if you would like to learn more about um, this, this story and um, ask any questions of Hannah. All right, so... Joseph Pike, I think, was I got really interested in Joseph Pike when I was reading your your piece, because there's also this history with the IUD in the United States. Um, I was recently um, I was recently listening to something that they were talking about how, you know, the first IUDs um, in the U.S. made women really sick because they weren't um, the way that they were manufactured and the way that the, um, you know, a lot of the the like quality control was about how you know the IUD feels for um, people who were having sex with these women who had IUDs in um, but they were you know people really wanted them they wanted another option from the pill they wanted um, a way to protect themselves from having an unwanted pregnancy um, so you've got Joseph Pike who comes in post all that, you know, the IUD isn't safe or the IUD makes you sick or the IUD is uncomfortable. And he takes it from, um, the finishing enterprise, which you, uh, um, which was making IUDs for, for women outside of the U S and he, he, he purchases the, the IUD. What, what's going on with Joseph Pike at this, this point? Yeah, so that's sort of where the story begins because it sets him up to then, uh, you know, set up the investment infrastructure for the abortion pill. But basically, um, in the 80s, like you're right, that uh, a lot of American women had shunned the IUD because the Dalcon Shield had caused all these horrible injuries and there had been all these lawsuits. And so there was a lot of skepticism um, and yeah, he buys this manufacturer that's making a different IUD, the Paragard, which still exists, mm-hmm. um, and helps them to over sort of about five years to bring that copper IUD, the Paragard, to the U.S. Um, and then sells the company for uh, a reported sixty-five million dollars. He bought it for about one point one million. So. You have an that enormous, a, yeah. enormous, enormous return. <laughs> you said uh, 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 that's fifty eight hundred percent. That's a that's a hefty return. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Definitely a very smart investment. Mm-hmm. Um. So Pike, basically in retirement. You know, he's he's out there. He's golfing when the Population Council calls. Um. Yep. Because because he's someone who took something that women didn't want. Right. They. They'd shun the IUD, and he was able to make a, a nearly 6,000% return on it, right? So he was their guy. Yeah, he, you know, he had made a very smart investment and brought the IUD to the U.S. Um, and retired from the practice of law. He'd previously been a lawyer um, and then got this call saying, hey, can you essentially do the same thing with an even more controversial product, Mifepristone, the abortion pill? Um, can you create a financial infrastructure? Can you find investors um, and, you know, all of find a manufacturer, essentially build the venture from the ground up, 
to get this to U.S. women, um, which he then so to get into the financial infrastructure. This is this is where it all begins. So Pike is living, you know, near in San Diego, and he starts. He teams up with um, a a doctor. Her her name is Susan Allen, and the two of them start going around soliciting investors. And they're talking to, you know, pretty a lot of wealthy liberals. And I don't know a lot of the people that they spoke to, but some of the ones that he mentioned to me were just, it was, you know, Gloria Vanderbilt mm-hmm. or, um, you know, he at the, the fundraising was going on during the time of the O.J. Simpson trial. And so he met with um, one of O.J.'s defense lawyers, Bob Shapiro, at the time to ask if he wanted to invest. So he has dozens and dozens of these meetings. And I have no idea if these people invested. Um, A big piece of his pitch was promising them anonymity. Uh, So obviously, even speaking to me, 23, no, 20, more than that, almost 30 years later, he's, you know, he wouldn't tell me who said yes, who said no. So we don't know. Um. So he's having dozens and dozens of these meetings. Um, and in the course of this, he meets this, um, a pharmaceuticals hedge fund guy, investor in Tennessee, whose name is Brad Daniel. Mm-hmm. And him and Brad, they team up. And Brad has a, pr- a small private equity fund that then he essentially sets up a vehicle f- through that fund for investors to put their money into the abortion pill. And it's worth pointing out that there are so they create Pike and Daniel create this Byzantine financial structure for putting money into the actual pill. So they create an entity called Danko Labs, which is to this day the name of the retailer in the U.S. that uh, retails Mifepristone. Until 2019, it was the only retailer. Mm. They had a total monopoly. Um, so they create Danko Labs, but then they register all these entities like in the Cayman Islands, in Delaware, in California, that sort of each one feeds into the next one. Each one controls the next one in order to make sure that they can anonymize their investors. Because that, again, it's the 90s. All of their investors, their potential investors, really do not want their name attached to this project. So the private equity fund kind of controls this whole Russian nesting doll of sub entities that are registered all over the world through which people can invest into through like arrow, 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 Danko Labs, i.e. the abortion pill. Yeah. In your piece, you call it a Russian nesting doll, which it really it really is. Right. Like you can't tell from the biggest doll what is actually on the inside, which is the whole the whole idea. Um, And I know we we talked about this previously, but the whole this like whole bit of secrecy. Right. Is that it is so controversial at this time. Right. So like you're at the the apex of anti-abortion violence. And I, I imagine the only way that he could get people to buy in is by offering the secrecy and offering a return, right? Like there's got to be something in it for them. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, you know, these sorts of pitches, you, a seasoned investor would not invest if they didn't see the potential for a great return, which gets at, you know, so one of the main investors that they drum up that we know of is someone named Greg Hawkins, mm-hmm. who was a very experienced Wall Street investor, um, had previously worked at Solomon Brothers. Um, and at the time that they connect with him, he is helping to run a hedge fund called Long-Term Capital Management. And if you're a finance nerd like me, then you've definitely heard of Long-Term Capital Management because it um, collapsed very publicly and in a very big way in the late 90s and required, you know, the Fed to organize a bailout of that hedge fund. Um, So, you know, we're talking very, very seasoned Wall Street investors who um, are going to analyze a potential investment with an eye towards future returns. Um, so yeah, he was, you know, he had to promise anonymity as well as walk people through their potential returns. But keep in mind at the time, 
there was still not FDA authorization. So he's making a lot of promises saying, but right now they literally can't sell their only product. Right. It's a business that cannot make any money. But he's saying, listen, when it happens, when we get FDA authorization, this is going to be incredible. Right. This is going to be Which incredible. Which is really what ended up happening in terms of returns. Yeah. And you, you put in your piece, too. It's, it's also that, you know, they seem to believe in what they were they were doing right they they were making reproductive health better also was like a driving force of their of their work yeah it's interesting um the the motivations i think were twofold you know in one of the court records i remember reading daniel talks about how he believed in both right he believed in the social benefit of the drug but also its potential to make money and when i spoke to pike he said something very similar um, that he sort of, it was a both and situation. Um, so you're someone who thinks about money. I'm someone who doesn't think about money past my bank account. <laughs> but I, so, so like, is it shady to have all these like, um, you know, like corporate, or like all these structures inside a, you know what I mean? Like having the um, the the one corporation encapsulated in many other corporations corporations to have your money funneled that way? Or is that like a relatively normal thing? So it is very common, Mm -hmm. but it's also, I would say, you know, an issue in the sense that when you have that, you have no transparency. Um, I encounter, you know, LLCs and subsidiaries with different names all the time in my reporting And it's really hard to figure out who's behind them. And not just in this story, in any story. And from a, you know, public transparency perspective, I would say that that's not great. Mm -hmm. Like think about a publicly traded company, right? Publicly traded companies that we can all buy stock in. They have to file these long reports every quarter to the federal government that tell us about their finances. They tell us all this information. But private businesses don't have anything like that. So they're totally unaccountable to the public. Mm. Um, and I've, you know, I've reported a lot on private equity. Um, I've, the last year I've done several investigations about, you know, different realms where private equity has invested a lot of money. And private equity is one of the least transparent corners of finance. And the issue with that is that it bumps up against the very extreme profit motives that are baked into how private equity works. So, you know, what is private equity? Essentially, you have investor, wealthy investors, be they individuals or pension funds or, you know, what have you. They give a bunch, millions and millions of dollars to a private equity fund and they say, hey, I'm going to pay you a ton of money. I'm going to pay you huge fees. And the only reason I'm doing that is because I believe that you're going to make me a better return with this money than if I just put it in the stock market like I, Mm -hmm. Hannah, you know, might do. I might just buy an index fund, buy a shares in an index fund. So they, the incentive for the private equity funds is to extract a lot of profit as quickly as possible from the ventures in which they put money, the the companies they buy, the real estate they purchase, whatever it is. And that's why you sort of hear, I think a lot of people have heard of private equity, Mm -hmm. but they don't, and they're like, that makes me nervous. Something is wrong, but they don't totally get what it is and why there are potentially problems. And it's because their motive they have is to make as much money as possible as quickly as possible, right? That's why you hear about they buy a company and they lay off a ton of people or they hurt wages or they cut benefits or they bust the union, right? I wrote a story last year about um, a private equity-backed firm that was buying that had bought over 100 apartment buildings in Brooklyn during the pandemic and were kicking tenants out. Why? To transform their units into luxury apartments that they could then rent for way more and get a lot more money very quickly. So they're literally kicking people out in the middle of a pandemic in service of that profit motive. So 
this is a very long-winded answer <laughs> yeah. to your question. Like when you have an industry like private equity that has enormous, enormous amounts of capital to play with, to invest, and you mix that with, they have a mandate to make a ton of profit very, very quickly, you know, by any means possible. And we have no transparency into those means. Mm -hmm. They don't have to tell us, they don't have to publish a report, like a publicly traded company that's like, here's what we did. Like, you know, that to me is a combination of extreme profit motive, huge amounts of money and wealth and total, total opaqueness, opacity, opaqueness (laughs) that we should as you know, that I think journalists should be paying attention to um, and regulators should be paying attention to. uh, And there are, you know, there's lawmakers who have talked about trying to reform private equity to make it more transparent for this exact reason to impose regulations. Mm -hmm. But that hasn't happened yet. So um, in short, very normal to have a ton of subsidiaries to hide identity. Um, But the lack of transparency that's baked into that, I think does a disservice to the public being able to know like what is actually going on. Yeah, if you are just tuning in, that is Hannah Levitova, who is a self-described money nerd and a (laughs) award-winning investigative reporter at Mother Jones. Um, We are talking about her new piece, The Abortion Pill's Secret Money Men. Um, And we're at the point where these, um, these companies have been created. We've got Danco Lab, Laboratories, Inc. in the Cayman Islands. We've got, um, the Dan- Danco LP in California. Um, we have the ND management in Cayman Islands. Um, Danco's Pike's son is what I've what you what you say in the thing. Oh no, the name yeah, the name was inspired by, by his, his son. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So they they're all controlled, and we have money coming in. So um, where where are we now? We're um so um the project runs into a roadblock of sorts (laughs) because um remember pike is the organ the main organizer here Mm -hmm. daniel and hawkins are already involved but pike's the main organizer um and it comes out that pike um had been um stripped of his law license uh in in north carolina where he previously practiced um and that he had also pled guilty to a misdemeanor forgery charge and um that hadn't been shared with the population council or with investors and so the council really starts to worry about this because they don't want investors to come back and say we were misled um and they're they just want because this is such a controversial product they don't they are worried this could jeopardize investors this could jeopardize fda authorization and so they say we need pike you got to get out like we need you fully out of this um and any investor that you drummed up we need to give them an opportunity to leave because they didn't have the full story right so at the time without getting into all the insane subsidiaries and details so at that time some investors do pull out and there's a bit of a shakeup of how this whole entity, this Russian nesting doll is structured. Um, But Daniel and Hawkins, not only do they stay in, but as part of the restructuring, essentially create opportunities for themselves to um, make more money from the investment. So, there's a, a structure that's created that gives Daniel um, one of the votes sort of power over a lot of the shares. Um, and for that, it's called a proxy vote. Mm-hmm. Um, he is going to get, um, at the time, $300,000 a year to be adjusted for inflation going forward um, for holding that proxy vote. Um, so he has made uh, over $10 million since that time 
um, in the, just those fees alone. Mm-hmm. That doesn't account for, keep remember, he runs the private equity fund. His private equity fund is getting a cut of the profits, of every investor's profits. They're getting between 10 and 20%. He's also, his fund is getting paid a 1% management fee as well. Um, he also has an entity set up that like sort of somehow rents office space to Janko Labs and he's getting money from that as well. So um, the shakeup happens, but the result for Hawkins and Daniel is um, further investment for themselves and further opportunity to um, make money from the venture. Yeah, so you you write in your piece that as all these investors are deciding to leave and an undisclosed amount of, of investors decide that they're going to leave um, after all this information about Pike comes out, um, that Hawkins decides that he's going to basically make up the difference, right? He's going to say, okay, all these investors are leaving. The money that they're taking with them, I'll, I'll put up. Yeah, he pledges. He, say, he says, you know, I don't know how much money is going to come out, but I'll cover it. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is, I'll cover it. Um, but then his hedge fund collapses. Right. That the long-term capital management um, collapses. And then he comes back and says, uh, just kidding. I My hedge fund just collapsed and I don't have the money to cover all of this. But um, I'm going to drum up some other investors to cover what I can't. Right. And and in this sort of situation where his his hedge fund is collapsing, he also needs to protect his investment right into um, do we call it Danko Labs? Is that what we're here? Danko Labs. Yeah, yeah. that's it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. I mean, this is where the story gets really hairy and where there's a lot of disagreement in the court record about what happened Um, in the Sparknotes version is that Hawkins says that he did, in fact, come and and drum up some other investors um, and he created some LLCs for them to invest through. Um, Daniel alleges that Hawkins created these LLCs for these other investors to put money in. But in fact, those LLCs some of them were a ruse. And in fact, it was an effort by Hawkins. He was putting in his own money and using this structure to essentially pay less in fees to, to Daniel and his private equity fund to essentially, uh, you know, at this moment where he'd lost a lot of wealth, let him try, he's trying to essentially make some more money than he might otherwise be entitled to. And there's a lot of disagreement here. You know, there's a story where Daniel alleges that, one of the investors that Hawkins brought to him, he said, hey, I've drummed up a Catholic priest who wants to invest in the abortion pill. And obviously, because he is a Catholic priest, he requires utmost anonymity. So I've set up this LLC and he's going to put in all this money. And Daniel, his claim is that there was, you know, that was all a lie. And this... um LLC again. It was just it was just Hawkins's money, and he was hiding that fact with this story of the priest. Hawkins says he he did bring in a friend with an LLC, but that he never said it was a priest. That it was just a very devout person, and um, that this person was going to invest, but then at the last minute they didn't, and so Hawkins was forced to put his own money in. So in the end, it, the LLC was indeed Hawkins's own money. Um, but there's a lot of disagreement about this story. And and I remember reading it in the court record and just being like, oh, my God. I mean, this is sort of uh, what a, you know, colorful set of details, this idea of whether it's a Catholic priest or just a very religious devout person who wants to invest. Um, it, it speaks to sort of the potential hypocrisy that someone with devout religious views, be they a priest or not, is actually considering investing in this thing that they ostensibly disagree with because of the profit potential. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's pretty fascinating. And, you know, well, I, I don't think we'll ever know 
who, what story is 100% true. Um, that's kind of what was laid out. But yeah. I will say in your piece, I was like, that is a rich priest. <laughs> he had quite a, quite a bit of money got invested in that LLC, uh, just shy of uh, $950,000. Um, I think the other- and there's disagreement about how much yeah. they disagree about how much money one says 950 one says less this is what I'm saying the as you know the feud in court records is very real yeah also so during this time too um, Hawkins wife gets involved right with the the investments to to protect some of Hawkins monies right so right around the time right before his hedge fund collapses he asks Brad Daniel, who again runs the private equity fund, is sort of the main in control of this whole nest of entities. Uh, if he can move his entire stake in the company, in Danko Labs, to his wife's name, which Daniel agrees to. And, you know, it's hard to know 100% why, but the what Daniel alleges is that this was a way to protect some of his wealth from what was coming, whether if there was going to be a bankruptcy, if there were going to be creditors, like not fully knowing what's what comes on the other side of this, the collapse of like a globally significant hedge fund, right? This hedge fund controlled almost 5% of global financial assets at its peak. So not knowing what that was going to ha- what was that was going to look like for him personally and for his money personally this was a way to protect his stake yeah if you're just tuning in uh, i'm talking with hannah levitova an investigative reporter at mother jones where she writes stories about money and influence income inequality and politics we're talking about her recent piece abortion pills the abortion pills secret money men and we're deep in here right now with uh daniel and hawkins two of the um well the two of the the big money men in this in this conversation um so as we we get through this this bit this like a rough patch maybe um the fda comes through right yep yeah the fda in 2000 authorizes mifepristone which means that Danko Lab can finally start making money. They can finally start selling the thing they've been saying they're going to sell. Um, and they do. They uh, Within a few years, they pay back their investors. And from that point on, they start making a profit. A, a pretty profit, yeah? So the numbers are very hard to come by because in these court records, they have all been redacted. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there's lots of like black you know, squares. Um, but the for the story, I did some back of the napkin math because there are percentages. So looking just at the Hawkinses, for example, um, they invested according to their own um, declarations in court, somewhere between nine and $11 million. And based on that amount, um, in, in, in the court records, uh, the CFO of the company says that they've made about 228% on their investment, which would translate to somewhere between 20 and $25 million of profit um, on off of their original investment, in addition to making back the original investment. Um, and so... Uh, and then I should add, <laughs> actually, the other... They then say that the average for all investors has been about 452%, which is, again, you know, a huge number. Yeah. You um, you write in your piece, and we've already talked about how it's un- unclear whether or not the priest is real or not, but this was this was how it came out, right? As they started making money, like, I, you know, I need to figure out who gets their, their return back, and it's the, the priest is so... Um, is so underground that we can't even know who he is to give his money back to. Right. So at a certain point, um, that that's sort of what precipitates some of this legal fighting in court um, is that when the time comes to start paying out profits, uh, Daniel says he reached out to the Hawkinses to say, hey, I need to know who this person is so I can send them their money. 
Um, and that that and Hawkins really resisted that um, offering, you know, Daniel says he offered to pay money to not have to reveal the identity. Um, uh, Hawkins disputes that. Um, but that so that disagreement is what is the moment where Daniel says he sort of starts to think, are these LLCs actually other people or are they Hawkins himself? Um, which leads to all the court fighting. What what comes of that? Like what, you know, the court fighting happens. What's the what's the resolution? So um, they it ended up it was a long journey. This is so there's there's actually three different cases. But in this particular case, long journey, um, the judge in the case declined to throw out the allegation of fraud tied to this potential priest LLC. Um it did come out in the course of the proceedings that most likely there was never an actual priest, but um, but so the judge declines to throw out these allegations of fraud against Hawkins, and at that point Daniel and Hawkins decide to settle. So we don't know the terms of the settlement, we don't know, but uh, it was set to go for a trial, and then once when the judge said, you know what, I'm not going to throw out the allegations of, of fraud about the priest LLC, um, the two sides decided to come to a private agreement. Yeah, you know, before we we went live, you and I were talking about how this is a story that hasn't really been told. Um, so, well, yeah, what was going on like in the public as as this pill or these these pills were becoming available for use? Um, were did people know that this was going on was it like publicized in the news that there was this lawsuit or this uh court fighting going on not at all um there's really been almost no coverage of these cases um which is why when i sort of stumbled on them and started reading some of the facts and some of the allegations i was like this story is this is such a this is the financial story behind a really important product and a product that um, whose the, the financial landscape, legal landscape, healthcare landscape for it is about to really change with the overturning of Roe. Um, and I was just so fascinated by it. But no, the story was it was not in the news at all. Um, there are, you know, a few very kind of like short clips from legal. Uh, one of the cases, the, the case in Delaware, you know, did get a few sort of short write-ups in, you know, like legal publications like Bloomberg Law and things like that. Um, but no one was really following these cases in a deep way at all. Yeah. So um, where do these two, um, or I guess, let's say the the money, the investors in general, where do they fall now that um, we're in a, you know, post-Roe era and, you know, 26 states have, you know, out... Um, it's illegal to get an abortion or their abortion access is extremely restricted. Um, you know, where, where are they falling? And, and I guess maybe like where are we as a, as a nation at with this? Yeah. So, you know, there was a study, an academic study done recently that found that demand for the abortion pill has skyrocketed. And the primary driver of that demand has been the 12 states where abortion is now completely illegal. And then sort of secondary most intense driver of demand is the rest of those 26 where it's very severely restricted. Um, So we don't know quite how profitable this is now going to be, but we know that demand is skyrocketed and we know that it's profitable enough that Daniel and Hawkins are continuing to fight about it in court. Um, The Delaware case is the most recent one. Um, There's a case in New York that still has a little bit going on. Um, And, you know, on top of that, we know that, like you said at the very beginning, the FDA has authorized retail pharmacies to sell the pill um, to, you know, which was not the case before, which again, more act, that means more access, which likely means you know, pair that with more demand. Um, again, more more profitable. But uh, be getting back to you know my spiel before about transparency, this is a totally private company. So <clears throat> uh, unless they decide to you know release more stuff in court, fight more in court, 
we'll never know mm-hmm. um, what that what this new landscape really translates into financially for them. Um, but it's clear that it's profitable enough that they're continuing to fight for more control. Um, that's what the the case in Delaware was essentially uh, between Daniel and the Hawkinses, fight, each fighting to have more control of the direction of the business to essentially capitalize on this moment um, when there's a lot of demand. Um, and each one essentially saying, I need more control to take it in the right direction to make sure that we use this moment correctly and make you know, make more, make money on this moment and sure, also create access at this moment. Um, So I think there's also, you know, there's this case in Texas that threatens the FDA authorization that made this pill possible. And that decision could come down very soon. And there's a lot of fear that uh, it could overturn the FDA authorization of Mifepristone. And if that happens... That I mean, all bets are off. I, I, well, I, you know, I'll have to come back on the show if it does, and we can talk about it. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, I think that's a great note to leave it on. Uh, Hannah Levitova is an award-winning investigative journalist um, at Mother Jones, where she writes about stories, uh, money, influence, income inequality, politics. Her recent piece for Mother Jones is the abortion pill Secret Money Men. I'll make sure that that is linked on the show post for this show. Thank you so much, Hannah, for joining us today. Thanks again for having me. Yeah, of course. Big shout out to Ben for engineering and manning the phones, though no one called. Um, Big shout out to Sholly Pittman, our news director here. And uh, next week, you'll have Ali Muldrow for our Valentine's Day episode. Uh, Stay tuned for Letters and Politics up next. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. Tribal war, dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. Attempt triangulation of our station in the fight. Straight from the base, deep down, low precision. High crime treason, we broadcast in sedition.